Fayetteville, Pennsylvania, Monday afternoon, November 22, 
And uh, these books were, were omitted because of the lack of apostolic credentials. However, the contents of most of them alone would be enough to exclude them if we were going to do it on that basis. One of these I've often mentioned in um, Bible 101 when we're discussing the credibility of the Bible miracles has Jesus as a little boy performing miracles to amuse his playmates. Can you imagine a 10 or 11 year old that, oh really, this is talent, you know, that could do it. And he would take clay and model a little bird and hold it in his hand and, and speak to it or whistle and comes alive and flies away. Now that's, um, see, the, the real Bible gives practically nothing about the childhood of Jesus. It only gives one incident from the time he was 40 days old till the time he was 30 years old, and that's the visit to the temple at the age of 12. So this is a blank covered only by a general statement. Jesus grew and increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. This is sort of a blanket statement about he grew up. Now people in the early church say, what an awful pity that there aren't any records of the childhood of Jesus. How interesting this would be. So lacking valid historical data, they do on their imagination and produce some. And so you have these apocryphal childhood gospels, the two or three of them, filled with the fantastic things like that. And that miracle lacks the serious purpose that the Bible miracles always have. It doesn't have the marks, Mr. S. Have you ever read the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ? The Aquarian? Is this an astrologist book? No. One of the guys says he's trying to be inspired by the best students, right? One of the Well, that doesn't matter very highly to me. Like, you know, it goes along with one of the students. Yeah. It's not one of the students, but all of the years they weren't coming. Where's he trying to get itself? Oh, right out of the blue sky. Let's see, yeah. Well, they, um, I think um, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to guide his church and disciples into all truth. And while we, uh, uh, I don't know, you're Catholic and maybe you have a different belief about this, but most Protestants don't believe that the church councils were infallible, but that they were providentially guided, so they made the right choice. And uh, it has stood the test of time and uh, became universally accepted by all branches, Eastern Orthodox, Coptic, Ethiopian, uh, and uh, Roman Catholic, of course, and, and all others. So there's never been, we've had disputes about other things, there's never been a serious dispute since then about whether the right books got into the New Testament, Mr. James. Almost all of those were accepted. Well, sure, but this uh, sort of um, put a, an imprint on it or um, ratified it by official action so that uh, if the questions are raised after that, it could be said, this is what the church has agreed upon. Now then, this is what. Oh, no, later than that, about... Um, uh, it was finished about between the year uh, 200 and 300, in there somewhere. Not the first, see, the books were not all written until about the end of the first century. And it was, it was after that that this came to be. Now, Mr. Nerd. Well, the authentic books that are in the New Testament, sure, there are over a thousand manuscripts of the New Testament from ancient times in Greek and in. Uh, Smaller number in Latin and in other languages like Armenian, 
And this is a, um, a massive witness to the um, contents of the New Testament as to books. Now, um, this doesn't mean that, um, that every individual person agreed to this. There have always been people with deviant beliefs and some with heresies and so forth, but this became a universally recognized Christian belief. Now, in this chapter here that uh, Blakelock takes up, to my mind, this is of interest to us. These sayings of Jesus found outside of the Bible, outside of the canonical gospel, um, may be true. See, he, he judges whether they are authentic by do they ring true as compared with what we have from Jesus in the, in the Bible, in the canonical gospel. Now, that's a subjective test, you see. That isn't asking who is the author, or is it one of the apostles? But does it ring true? Does it have, as he says, the, the, um, the ring of authenticity to it? Now, how do you know what the ring of authenticity is? Well, presumably you know that by reading the ones in the Bible. Now, I think we could say that at least part of these that, um, that are cited here, and of course he doesn't give them all, may very probably be genuine sayings of Jesus but were not intended by the Holy Spirit to be a part of the canon of Scripture. You see, there's the two different questions. One is, did Jesus really say this? And the other, was this intended to be part of the inspired Word of God? And uh, we read, actually, at the end of the Gospel of John, it says, uh, these are written that you may believe. And then other things did Jesus do and say uh, that are not written in this book, so many that if they were all to be written down one by one, even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. That, needless to say, is a, is a hyperbole. That's a, an intentional exaggeration to prove a point. But um, this indicates that what we have in the Gospels is a mere, let's say, um, condensed sampling of the many, many things that Jesus said. So it is not inherently impossible at all that others that have come down without the safeguard of, of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just by ordinary historical tradition, still may be, uh, some of them at any rate, genuine things of Jesus, and as Blakelock says, others probably not, but uh, at least they're worth looking at. Now, that raises the question, the Gospel of Thomas was discovered, should the um, uh, different publishing firms and so on, societies that publish the Bible now start to put that in. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Thomas. What do you think of that, Mr. You wouldn't, Mr. Brown? All right. I think if this had been intended to be part of the Bible, the uh, providence of God would have seen to it that it was not lost for nearly 2,000 years. And even if something would be discovered today at this late date, that um, you could form a valid judgment that it was written by uh, St. Peter or Matthew or somebody, uh, still we would not print that in the Bible because the fact that um, God in his providence allowed it to be lost for so many hundreds and hundreds of years would indicate it was not intended to be in the canon of Scripture. Uh, however, if this is hypothetical, and we haven't found a, a, such an authentic book by one of the apostles. Now, starting out with this fourth chapter, Archaeology and the Sayings of Christ, the author says here that um, there's some strange sources of some of these things, and one is from a Mohammedan poet. You know, the Mohammedans class Jesus as a great saint. They consider him um, 
second only to Mohammed. That's not the high enough honor for a Christian, but um, they uh, honor Jesus, but do not recognize his divinity or as the Son of God, and uh, they, of course, rate Mohammed as higher than, than Jesus. But uh, they do claim to honor Jesus. And this is the uh, saying here, a group of people were um, looking at a dead dog. Is that a edifying spectacle? <laughs> and this dead dog evidently considerably the worse for wear. And uh, they make various oh, uh, unkind comments about the poor dead dog when um, Jesus is reported to have said that his pearls cannot rival the whiteness of his teeth. And someone hearing this said, that must be Jesus of Nazareth that said that. Now, um, I don't know, what would be the point of a remark like that? Pearls cannot rival the whiteness of his teeth. What do you learn from that that would help you to be a Christian? That pearls couldn't rival the whiteness of the teeth of a dead dog. Well, may Mr. Fetty... Well, all right. Um, maybe we could say that this is a comment on uh, God's creation, that he put uh, beauty and so forth where we wouldn't expect it, something like that. But I uh, I don't know. I think Blake operates this one a little bit too high and, uh, about the dead dog. And... Um, um, he says that Jesus had a way of saying things that burned the heart when he remembers the story. Let him, him that is without sin among you throw the first stone. Uh, that is from the um, beginning of John chapter 8 and one of the two places in the New Testament where there's serious doubt as to the textual genuineness of it. He quotes this. It may be genuine all right, but there's question as to whether it's genuine at that place in the Gospel of John. The oldest manuscripts leave it out, and some of them put it in a different place, and even in one of the other gospels. So uh, this is the, the question mark about that. Now, 599, a mosque at Agra. Where is Agra? Well, Mr. Wilson, where is Agra? Yeah, it's, uh, it's in India. And here's a mosque that has a big gateway and over it uh, an Arabic sentence which translated in English says Jesus on whom the peace said the world is merely a bridge you are to pass over it and not to build your dwellings upon it well now does that sound like um, Mr. Johnson that sound like something Jesus might have said well now look what's this Lay not up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and less stuff corrupt, and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rest stuff corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, don't bank too heavily on this present life. It won't stand the test, and it won't last, and it will let you down. But uh, that which is eternal will not pass away. And if your life is centered there on that, you're on something solid that won't fail you. Now, this is something like that. The world is a bridge. Uh, you're to pass over it, not build your dwellings upon it. Now, um, this, this could be a genuine saying of Jesus. It's similar to things that he did say. 
On the other hand, how did this ever get to be over the doorway of a Mohammedan mosque in India? That's an interesting question, and I don't think anybody could answer it except with a uh, hypothetical answer like he gives here. Which of the two apostles are said by church tradition to have preached the gospel in India? Mr. Thompson? Well, there's two of them. Mr. Hess? Thomas and Bartholomew, and especially Thomas. Now, let me tell you, there's a church with many thousands of people on the west coast of India that are called Thomas Christians and um, claim that Christianity came to them first, now we go for it, through the Apostle Thomas. And when the first missionaries, both Catholic and Protestant, went to India, well, they found these people, Christians already, with a somewhat mixed-up faith, but Christians, and tracing it back to Thomas, one of the twelve apostles. And this is uh, not incredible at all. It's, uh, it's, uh, see, if, if Thomas didn't preach to these people, who did? Obviously, they have a form of Christianity. It may be somewhat distorted, but it's a form of Christianity. Where did they get it? They didn't uh, just invent it themselves. Somebody must have brought it there. So uh, evidently this tradition is worthy of credence. Now, um, it says this is prior to the modern missionary enterprise. And um, Akbar, an emperor or a king, Akbar, any of you know when this fellow lives? Well, Akbar was a uh, Mohammedan ruler in northern India, and he died in 1605 just 15 years before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth Rock. He was born in 1542 and died in 1605. And uh, he was, this man was what we would call a syncretist. Now, what is syncretism? Yeah, two or more, and put them together. And uh, this is a tendency that has existed in the Far East and still does, the idea that uh, all religions must be uh, basically one and um, have the same basic idea, and uh, we'll put them all together with the uh, good points of all and the bad points of none and get the ideal religion by a sort of a composite in this way. And I have, um, well, I was in my office in China once, and two Chinese dressed up in the frostiest, fanciest, most expensive silk ornaments came in, and here they represented a syncretistic organization called the Five Religions Virtue Society. <laughs> the Five Religions Virtue Society, this was Christianity, Islam, Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism. Five religions. And they claimed that all these were basically the same in their organization. Uh, was based upon all five. And they were dedicating a fancy new expensive building and wanted me to come and appear on the platform and sit in a row with the Buddhist priest and the Mohammedan mullah and so forth. And, um, I didn't go. And, uh, I refused to go to this. And I said, I cannot participate in this. This is, uh, this would, um, betray my faith and uh, give a false witness that I believe these religions are the same. Don't you believe that all religions are the same? I said, no. All religions except one are the same. This fellow said, why? The purpose of all religions is Hugh Dao Sing Shan. Uh, Hugh Dao Sing Shan. 
to cultivate virtue and perform good works. I said, well, that's, that's what you think. But um, Christianity is um, salvation by the shed blood of a substitute. And this is unique. Well, I didn't see that. So I refused. They were kind of missed, too. But I wouldn't go. And what did they do? There was a Japanese Christian pastor in town. He was a blind man doing missionary work. They used to joke about it. They got a blind pastor in that church so he couldn't see what the members were up to. <laughs> Anyhow, they got him. And he went there, and I saw the printed program later. He went there and spoke representing Christianity. I don't think he should have done it. But this is syncretism. And it's a, it's a strong tendency. Uh, and, of course, this would be a, a little interest to us if it didn't try to hook Christianity in on the deal. But when it tries to involve Christianity in this, it inevitably drags Christianity down to the level of mere human, um, let's say, social service agencies and that kind of thing. Now, this man, Akbar, he was a syncretist. And like uh, uh, others, he wanted to combine religions, and he tried to put them together, and in doing this, he gave this much honor to Christ to put a saying of Jesus up over the gate of this temple. At least, Blakelock says, maybe that's how this thing got over this mark. Uh, maybe it wasn't, but this is at least a, a plausible explanation of it. Now, this saying of Jesus, the world is a bridge. You cross over it, but don't build houses on it. Who builds houses on bridges? Well, um, we don't today, of course. Baycock says the old London Bridge, people built houses on it. Uh, there were no bridges in Palestine. The Jordan is the deepest ditch on earth. But there never was a bridge over it till Roman times. The Romans took two bridges over the Jordan, but I think later in the time of Jesus. No bridges over the Jordan. You crossed it by swords. Certain places where the river was widened out and therefore the water shallow, and you could go across either in shallow water or from stone to stone. That's the Jordan. But it is recorded that Jesus, once in his life, made a trip to Tyre and Sidon. Now, I don't want to take too much time on this one point, but um, Sekhar doesn't say where the Bible says that. I'll give you a reference. I looked it up. Matthew 15, verse 21. Matthew 15, 21, and Mark 7, 24 and 31. Just north of Palestine, of course. Just north and east up the coast, a little bit beyond the limits of the Holy Land. And then... Made a trip there and then came back. And it is possible that while there he saw the causeway that linked the old island of Tyre to the mainland. Now Tyre was originally an island. Who built the causeway? And his name starts with A. <laughs> Alexander the Great, yeah. And then uh, he, uh, in order to conquer Tyre, and he did and captured it and largely destroyed it. But this causeway remains, and here's a picture of some of the um, debris of it there, still lying there, it can be photographed at this present day, page 55. And this later uh, was covered with sand and so forth, and made a, it got wider, and linked Tyre with the mainland, so that today Tyre is connected up with the mainland. But the um, ruins of Tyre. But in Jesus' day, this causeway was narrow enough that you could... Call it a bridge, maybe, or at least it looked like a bridge. It served the purpose of a bridge to get across there. 
to the island of Tai. Yeah, Mr. Nair. Well, this is um, Blake Rock's attempt to explain this saying of Jesus. The world is a bridge. You cross over it and don't build houses upon it. And that uh, Jesus would not have seen any bridges in Palestine because there weren't any. But there were, were bridges. The only river uh, big enough to meet a bridge in Palestine was the Jordan, and that didn't have any in his time. The biggest today. And later in medieval times, the biggest. And late Roman times. But um, the, uh, uh, that Jesus may have seen this um, sort of a bridge across to the island of Tyre, and that may be the origin of this saying about the world being a bridge. And so um, he ties that in with the idea we have no continuing city, we look for the city that has foundations instead of Abraham. Now then, um, page 56, the exclusion from the gospel. Codex Bezae, B-E-Z-A-E. Bezae was one of the Swiss reformers of the same time as Calvin and Zwingli in the middle of 1500. And one of the most important, not the very most important, but one of the second rank of, of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament is called Bezus Codex. Whether he discovered it somewhere or what, I'm not sure. But Codex Bezae, B-E-Z-A-E. And this contains a uh, saying that is not found in the Bible or the canonical gospel. On the same day, Seeing someone working on the Sabbath, he said to him, Man, if you know what you are doing, blessed you are. If you do not know, you are cursed and a transgressor of the law. Now, um, I wonder, does that sound like something that Jesus said? Well, does it, Mr. Brown? Not the first part of the thing. It's a contradiction of what's commanded. Well, it doesn't sound exactly. Now, uh, this is, if this is a true saying of Jesus, it has probably become distorted. Jesus, however, healed people on the Sabbath and defended the action against the criticism of those who opposed it, you recall, in various times. And when his disciples ate the ears of grain on the Sabbath day, he, and they were criticized for it, he defended it as legitimate. You know, there was a Scottish lady in Scotland who was extremely strict about the Sabbath, super, super, super strict, and Somebody said to her, didn't you ever hear what Jesus and his disciples did when they went through the green fields on the Sabbath day? Yes, I know that's in the Bible, but you know, I never really quite felt it was right for him to do it. <laughs> now, if Jesus did it, you can be sure it was right. I mean, where else do we get our real standard of right than from him who, who lived the perfect life? On the other hand, this saying sounds um, somewhat confusing. If you know what you're doing, you are blessed. Old uh, chapel keeper in China went out on the Lord's Day morning and came back with a horse and a wagon and a load of fuel for the church stove. And I said to my Chinese assistant, that every Old Testament, said how fortunate for Brother so-and-so that he lives under the New Testament dispensation. What did they do in the Old Testament in the time of Moses to the fellow that was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath? Stoned to death. <laughs> we didn't stone the old guy, but he was he was with me. <laughs> All right, this I would say is um, if this is a genuine saying, it is um, it is somewhat distorted. Now the next thing here is the old man of the mountain. Those of you that had comparative religions already met up with this celebrity, Old Man of the Mountain. 
Marco Polo refers to them. There were two of these. One of them was in Palestine, and one, or in Syria, rather, and one of them was a further up country. But um, both of them, let's say, uh, prime leaders in the Muslim sect of the Assassins, the religion of the Assassins. And Assassins comes from the word for Hashish, the Hashish religion. Sounds awfully modern. Hashish is um, Indian hemp closely related to marijuana, only considered a little bit stronger, sort of as um, Christy would be the lion, maybe. But the hashish really does something to you. I never saw any other to try to put them. Well, my son Mel is pestering Kansas, got marijuana growing all over the place. A big cemetery back there, you could, you could reap wagon loads of it. Good wild, rank along the fence road. And students from Kansas University come out there to study the marijuana plant. <laughs> <laughs> and the state government sends helicopters out to soar around and see who's the, you know, the father of our former basketball player, Gary O'Neill. To John O'Neill, he had a tremendous patch of it in a pasture field, and then uh, ran around some rocks where he couldn't, you know, he couldn't get the finest and he sort of caught off. And, and uh, when he found out this was marijuana, um, he motored, he said, cut it all down and burn it. Uh, it's really wild. They'll never stamp it out. You might just well try to get rid of dandelions from American lawns if you get rid of marijuana from, uh, from Kansas and Iowa. It's, it's a weed. Well, all right, hashish, the hashishans, the hashish people. And this man would um, think of this for a political gimmick. He would uh, get his trusted servants thoroughly high on hashish, and at this point they'd do anything he told them to. He'd send them out to assassinate elected parties, and they'd come back and he'd reward them. Marco Polo tells how he even had a heaven that he had valley that was all shut off with only one way to get in between steep cliffs and he built a big wall and gate in that and inside here everything was beautiful with pavilions and the most beautiful girls and uh, wine to drink and uh, it was supposed to be paradise and he would get his servants uh, drunk on um, uh, drugs to the point where they dropped unconscious then take them in there and they'd wake up and find they were in paradise boy lovely and then um, after they'd been there a few days, he'd put them to sleep again and take them out and, oh my, not in paradise anymore. Then he'd say, well, you have a chance to get back in paradise if you'll go and kill so-and-so. Like, uh, even if you get killed in the attempt, you'll get straight back to paradise. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he got them, he had them uh, under his influence as well as under the influence. So, well, this is the assassin. And then... Uh, here, one of the crusaders, uh, see, who is the crusader here? De Joinville, French knight of the Third Crusade, the date A.D. 1248. He uh, went to this place and found this man and wanted to have words with him and found him uh, with a book by his bed entitled The Words of the Lord Unto Peter and left the book there and didn't get a copy of it. This crusader, like some of the rest, was more interested in gold than in religion, I'm afraid. And um, so at least there was a collection of the sayings of Jesus in this um, heathenish countryside, the year 1248, more than 
12 centuries after the time of Jesus, about eight to 900 years ago. Now, following this, he says, two papyrus discoveries have been made. One about 1900, and this says, Thou hearest with one ear, but the other thou hast closed. And Blakelock comments, we might say it still. I wonder, uh, Miss Garrett, is it possible to sit in church and daydream about something other than the sermon? This is possible if you try real hard to, to do. <laughs> well, of course it is. That we shouldn't. And um, uh, Dr. Psychology in the paper says the way to keep people awake in church is to build a fire in the pulpit. Keep them awake in church, build a fire in the pulpit. But um, this, this could be a genuine saying of Jesus. You see, he spoke about uh, hearing with the ear, the parable of the sower is something like this. People hear and the devil snatches the seed away that was planted in their heart so that nothing comes of it. This could tie in with some such saying as that. Now the other one discovered here in, um, um, well, another one from that discovery, this is rather remarkable and um, it's uncertain just what it means. Wherever there are two, they are not without God. If one is alone anywhere, I say that I am with him. Raise the stone, there thou shalt find me, cleave the wood, and there I am. Does that have a pantheistic ring? No, I'm afraid it does. Swinburne, British poet of the Victorian era, and definitely not a covey, Furthermore, even among British poets, he was more than living naughty. But uh, Swinburne was basically pantheistic. He was also pornographic, but basically pantheistic. And he spoke about the dust that is God. The dust that is God. Only a pantheist talks about the dust that is God, or the God that is dust. And this, uh, cleave the wood, and there I am. Raise the stone, and there thou shalt find me. The most natural interpretation of that is that it's not a saying of Jesus and is basically pantheistic and comes from some Greek or other oriental source rather than from Jesus, although attributed to him. It uh, might, however, of course, bear a uh, Christian meaning if you um, interpret it in that direction. Now, then 1904 further papyrus discoveries with sayings attributed to Jesus. Lord part page 57, Let him who seeks cease not till he finds. When he finds, he shall be astonished. Astonished, he shall reach the kingdom, and having reached the kingdom, he shall rest. that sound like anything Jesus ever said? Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Ask and it shall be given unto you. The, uh, this, this could be a uh, possibly uh, somewhat distorted tradition of a genuine saying of Jesus. Having reached the kingdom, he shall rest. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, this is the summum bonum, the, uh, the highest of all possible goods. That kind of a saying reflects that idea. And um, wonder at the things before you this is the first step to the knowledge that lies beyond. And Blakelock says this links Jesus with Plato. Well, maybe it doesn't too. But anyhow, it's interesting to notice. 
Now, the treasure in earth and vessels, where is Naj or Naj Hamadi, spelled N-A-J or N-A-G, Naj Hamadi, uh, and, and what was found there? And when was it found? And what, Mrs. Wilson? Um, last year we had one of those books you were talking about, the last job book, mm-hmm. the lost things and Christ or whatever. And this is lots of mine. It's got all kinds of... Let's hear. You mean in this course? Oh, no. They're the same type of books. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you said that when she was a player, it's got all kinds of pagan-type synthesis in it. Mm-hmm. Little heresies and stuff coming out to it. Well, you know, all this can be taken as the Romans used to say cum grano salis with a grain of salt and uh, we should be uh, if God intended this to be for our instruction as the teachings of Jesus it would have been in the Bible and this other is merely of um, let's say interest to us but you're not laying a foundation for your faith as a Christian by studying over these um, alleged but somewhat dubious sayings of Jesus. Now, Naj Hammadi is in Egypt, between Cairo and Luxor, and this was found there in 1945, and uh, pottery jars with scrolls sealed in them, similar to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Pictures given there, those pictured there, however, are not from Naj Hammadi, but from Qumran. These are from the Dead Sea Scrolls community. And these finally did reach the Western and modern and well-equipped scholars. And so you have found in them, age 59 now, question 52, the so-called Gospel of Thomas. Uh, a little bit of this had been found in 1903 in a papyrus. And now the whole thing was found. Now in the first place, um, is this um, the same kind of a book as the, I'm not talking about divine inspiration but the literary structure of it the same kind of a book as Matthew, Mark, Luke and John now Matthew, Mark, Luke and John give not only sayings of Jesus but a story of his life not a complete biography but a great many things that he did they narrate his birth and uh, many actions of his Whereas the so-called Gospel of Thomas is a collection of logia, or sayings only. It's just a collection of sayings. If you want to compare it with something, you could compare it with the Sermon on the Mount, maybe, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is um, only sayings of Jesus, you see. But if you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a whole, they give you the life of Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection and uh, many actions of his in addition to merely a uh, listing or an inventory of saying. Now, uh, he says that some of these are inconsiderable. That is, uh, not worthy of being considered, I guess. And contain none of the edge and patina, so characteristic of biblical utterances of Christ. The edge means uh, like the edge of a razor blade. And what does patina mean? finished. An old coin or an old metal collects a sort of a coating on it. You can polish that off and make it bright again, but don't expect to ever sell it to a museum for a genuine old coin. If you do, an old coin gets this uh, sort of a 
bronzy coating to it, and this is the mark of, of being old and ancient. And uh, so uh, he says the patina, the, the uh, earmark, let's say, or uh, the feeling you get that this is similar to the sayings of Jesus, or, or not lacking this, it would be not similar. Others, he says, are fresh and pungent. Whoever is near me is near the fire, and whoever is far from me is far from the kingdom. This we could uh, dismiss easily, except that origin about um, when did he live? About uh, in the 200s. Origin, Greek uh, Alexandrian scholar in Egypt, he uh, records the same thing. Whoever is near me is near the fire, as a saying of Jesus, although it is not found in the Bible. Now, uh, going on from this, Dr. Blakelock says, Jesus never betrayed consciousness of sin in word, thought, or act. This is remarkable. Anyone else, you would consider them uh, intolerably arrogant and conceited if they claim to be morally perfect. But Jesus, you don't feel that way about him. As you read the life of Jesus and his claim to sinlessness, it fits in perfectly. And you do not say he was proud or conceited, and you do not say he was out of his mind. It doesn't impress us that way. Uh, no consciousness of sin. Which of you convinces me of sin? This is increasingly evident from the kind of things they charge against Jesus. Now you go to get nominated to serve on the Supreme Court, and the Senate is going to give you the once-over to see if you're fit to serve on the Supreme Court. And if there ever was anything in your past record from the day you left your mother's apron strings till now that you ever said or did that isn't just quite right, why, they'll find it out. And uh, they dig up mud. And if anybody is running for president of the United States, he can expect to have his past record gone over with a microscope. Is this uh, politics or is it zeal for righteousness? I'm afraid it's politics. But anyway, look at the kind of things they charge Jesus with. This is evidence that they were stopping just a jiffy here and pick it up where we left it. This is evidence that um, they had nothing real to charge him with. Heal a poor sick man on the Sabbath. Things like this. If there had been anything real that Jesus had said or done that was wrong, you can be sure they would have brought it up. And when they brought up things like that, it shows there was nothing really there that they could bring up. Now, I'm going to mark where we stopped and we'll pick it up from there next time.